0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We're going to take you against the grain for the next couple of hours on this Friday. And obviously... We are going to spend a little bit of time talking about the (laughs) very, I mean, I'm trying to find synonyms for shocking and tragic. Uh, I I came up with unexpected earlier, which really isn't as weighty as it should be. But shocking, tragic and unexpected uh, news of the assassination of Shinzo Abe. Uh, Abe was shot while campaigning for his party in Japan. He was 67. He was Japan's longest serving prime minister and had a huge Huge influence on the country um not necessarily for the better, according to uh you know some of the analysts we speak to, uh, as has his family yes in fact um The person who shot him uh, has been taken into custody. The person who apparently shot him, who has confessed to shooting him. Um, And from what I can see, is given really conflicting statements about his motivations and his intentions.
1: Yeah, To the point where he may
0: not be in his right mind. That is what it is starting to look like. I mean, this is all very early days. Um, But so we are, of course, a little bit later in the show going to talk about Abe's death and his legacy. And also, I think we have to talk about what this might mean for and about Japan, right? Because right. Japan is a country where violent crime is, is relatively rare. Yeah, it's almost unheard of. Um, and gun violence yeah. really doesn't exist. Yeah, I normally. mean, almost.
1: In fact, this was a, a homemade gun yeah. that he used. I, I saw uh, some photos of it today. It was all held together with duct tape. And yeah. he was able to get two shots off, uh, both in uh, Shinzo Abe's neck, one of which went downward into his heart. And that's what killed him. Yeah, I mean,
0: I'm wary of, you know, making uh, broad inferences about, you know, the state of a society based on the actions of this one man who might be just a a nutcase, right? But it's worth talking about, at least. And so that is what we are going to do a little bit later. Uh, We are also going to talk about the U.S. economic news that we got today. We are going to talk about monkeypox because it's spreading.
1: Doggone monkeypox. It went from 605
0: national cases on the 6th to yesterday, 700, which means by today it'll probably be 900. And Mm. yeah, yeah, it was a joke.
1: Yeah, it's not a joke anymore. No,
0: (laughs) no, no. So we are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about the new COVID variant that is dominating among new cases in the United States and the very conflicting uh, reports about it. Right. On one hand. A a lot of media sources going, yeah, yeah, basically like Omicron's of the past, like better at evading immunity, but not necessarily any worse. But But then then if you look on social media. Oh, yeah. It's like it's like viral meningitis. Right. It's making young people really sick. Like this is the plague to worry about. And so we are going to ask uh, one of our public health experts uh, what what she makes of all of it and and what we should be doing in response, because so far the response has been. Absolutely nothing.
1: Zero response. And today's LA Times calls it ultra infectious. Yeah, like it's it's by a factor of X more infectious than the other subvariants of Omicron.
0: I mean, I know a bunch of people who've gotten COVID in the last uh, two weeks. Me too. So, and I'm sure that's this is what it is. And yes. a bunch of people who've gotten infected, you know, infected for the second and third time. Um, so, yes, we are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about Oklahoma going on a killing spree. Yeah, uh, that I've just heard about. So Pretty I'm interested crazy. in that. We're going to talk about what is coming out of the G20. It seems to be mostly fighting words, and and we would be talking about Joe Biden's executive order on abortion access, uh, but he hasn't come out to sign it yet. No, we're
1: still waiting for him to come out and sign it. Apparently, the White House has sort of leaked to the media what it's supposed yeah, to a, be. There's
0: a fact sheet. There's yeah, there's a fact, a fact, a fact sheet, sheet but, but it's
1: he hasn't actually said anything yet, and it's. He's 35 minutes late yeah. already.
0: That, that scalawag. <laughs> um, the fact sheet is pretty vague, right? Yes. It's, it's. It talks about ensuring um, medical care for people, including pregnant people. It talks about protecting access to uh, medical abortion, uh, to FDA approved medications to induce abortion. It talks about protecting access to contraception. Um, putting together a crew of volunteer lawyers to represent patients, providers, and third parties. Um, It also has some language about protecting patient privacy. Um, But it is all pretty vague. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have ruled out doing things like establishing um, abortion clinics and uh, reproductive clinics on federal land. I mean, that seemed like a nice idea, but I think a real problem with that is also simply uh, staff. That's, right. you know, I I don't know that we have the doctors to to do that. And so, uh, you know, some of the more specific suggestions from the progressive wing of his party have been, uh, you know, dismissed. So we'll see what this actually means. I mean, a lot of aspects of this executive order are going to be directions to the Department of Health and Human Services to convene a committee to study whatever and give a report in 30 days on what can be done.
1: It's kind of like closing the barn door after the animals have already escaped. I mean, wh- where were the Democrats the last uh, 50 years? Where, yeah. uh, where were the Democrats when they had 60 Senate seats? Fundraising. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, Obama did say it was going to be his like legislative priority. And then four months or something into office said, "Actually, it's actually, it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, abortion. Well, I was going to say, of course, abortion has always been controversial, but that's kind of not true. No. It is, again... In, in many circumstances, supported by most Americans uh, or access to it is supported by most Correct. Americans. So I think this controversy is, is to some degree artificial. Um, and so it would have been just sort of passing a law to uh, protect the will of the majority. But they couldn't couldn't get around to doing it. And now, of course, the discussion is all around the filibuster and whether it is worth it. To abandon this uh you know, safeguard. Yes. As some would describe it as as others would describe it, an anti democratic mechanism. Um, in order to to finally do this, yeah, too late. Yeah. Agreed. So we'll see.
1: We've got uh we've got a full slate of um of guests today and uh, Ray Valencia and I were going to talk about politics. We're still going to talk about politics, but we're going to be a little bit pressed for time in the second hour of the show. So I wanted to uh, just very quickly go over uh, a whole bunch of polls that have been released in the last couple of days that I think are important. Uh, We've been talking about the weakness of Joe Biden. We've been talking here on the show about these rumors, they, first, they were whispers. Now they're full-throated conversations about Joe Biden not running for re-election. There are rumors that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, would be willing to challenge Biden in the Democratic primaries, a la Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter back in 1980. So there, there are some polls that have come out. The first by Harvard University came out yesterday, shows Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump 43-40. to 40. Okay. 40 is about where Biden is stuck. Uh, An Emerson poll, which tends to be more Republican, uh, has Trump beating Biden 44 to 39. So they're just about the same numbers. Uh, Within the Republican primary, and this to me is far more interesting, Harvard shows Trump at 56%. Now that's just about where he was the last time we saw a Republican primary poll. But the thing is, You've already been president, right? You've been president for four years and you can only muster 56 percent. Yeah. That's a problem if you're running for reelection or for election a second time. So it has Trump 56, DeSantis 16. 16 doesn't sound like a lot. It's a lot. Okay, Especially if you haven't even announced your candidacy for president yet. Uh, Pence only seven. Uh, Nikki Haley, four percent. Marco Rubio, two percent. Ted Cruz, one. Tom Cotton, one. Mike Pompeo, one. This and is a Kamala
0: Harris class of yeah, presidential candidates. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Josh Hawley, zero. Zero. zero for Congratulations, Josh Congratulations, buddy. Emerson came out with a poll yesterday as well mm-hmm. that has very similar numbers. Trump, 55. DeSantis, 20. But they have Pence at nine, Haley at three, Rubio at one, Cruz at one, Cotton at one, Pompeo at one. Poor Josh Hawley.
0: Zero. Zero. At least he's consistent. <laughs> I'm a little surprised at how popular Pence is. I, maybe you, you I shouldn't be. You know what? Be, that was like, the first
1: thing that came to my mind when I saw these I'm numbers. I'm
0: surprised that he's, I mean, I guess it is just name recognition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But
1: that has to be it at this early stage, because, you know, we've said that that Mike Pence is the the Dan Quayle of this generation. Uh, Dan Quayle, of course, was vice president for four years under George H.W. Bush, Mm -hmm. announced his candidacy for president in 1992 and never made it past the Iowa caucuses. Uh, I suspect that's what's going to happen with uh, with Mike Pence.
0: Yeah, I just don't see Pence coming in. It's just no. a, it's a charisma issue.
1: It's a charisma issue. They really issue. tried to
0: convince us that Republican ladies were hot for Pence. Yeah, they're not. Come on, guys. Yeah,
1: sorry. Sorry. And even among evangelicals, when when um, Mike Flynn lied to, uh, to Pence and had to resign, uh, it, it, remember he had gone to Pence, one Christian to another, and he asked for his forgiveness, and the Pences prayed on it all night, and they decided not to forgive him. What? What? <laughs> Don't you remember that? And yeah. then Flynn had to resign. It's Good. like, what kind of Christians
0: are you? So, I mean, this is it. We could have a whole conversation about like <laughs> spe- the specifically American Christianity and how bizarre it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Pretty it's, crazy. Yeah. That's that's wild. Wait. I mean, it gives the penses something to do at night.
1: Oh, I'll tell you. We also have some Senate polls that I think are not going to surprise anybody. In North Carolina, the Republican, uh, Bud is leading the Democrat, Beasley, 48 to 45. It's a close race. Beasley's a very serious candidate. She was the uh, the, uh, chief justice of the state Supreme Court. Uh, Bud is a a congressman. It's going to remain close, but I think the Republicans are probably solid in that race. In Georgia, Raphael Warnock, Is just crushing Herschel Walker, 54 to 44. Wasn't
0: there a report about Walker recently where his own aides said that the campaign is just going to actually drive him over the edge? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then yesterday uh, there was a report that he was involved in some kind of a real estate scam that's just coming public now. Yeah, he's he's not going to be a senator. Uh, in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, 48, over Dr. Oz, 41. We're going to talk about that race in more detail later because— Are you going to talk about the, tr- the online troll wars?
0: Yeah. I've been much such a big fun. part of that race. It how is fun to watch. Fun I that? don't mind it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, should we should we be mad because it's oh it's childish, it's reducing US politics to yeah. sort of, should we be upset about that or should we just go, whatever, that's it's a politics. good time. They're expressing their personalities. That's, that's how, how part it's always it. been. Yeah. You
1: know, the thing about Oz too is for whatever reason, nobody seems to know. He just stopped advertising on May the twenty first. Yeah, where's he gone? He's disappeared. Huh. Yeah. He's just disappeared. And the Republicans are yelling at him to spend more of his own money. And he said, I already spent $12 million. How much more do you want me to spend?
0: I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only likable thing I've seen from Dr. Oz this entire campaign. I like that. Yeah. Draw a line somewhere, Doc. <laughs>
1: There's going to be a very, very close race in Wisconsin for the U.S. Senate. Uh, the state treasurer, Sarah Godlewski, 48. Senator Ron Johnson, 46. Um, They haven't had their primary yet, so we don't know which Democrat is going to run against uh, Johnson. The other Democrat that's running is uh, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who really is uh, one of the darlings of the left. He's been quite an effective lieutenant governor. But Johnson, the latest polls show Johnson beating him 50 to 47. The bottom line is that that is going to be probably the closest Senate race in the country. In November. So it bears watching. Gubernatorial polls very quickly. Uh, we've got Texas Governor Abbott and uh, Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat. Uh, two polls out, one showing Abbott winning 45 to 39, the other showing Abbott winning 49 to 41. And finally, very quickly, um, there is a group of Republicans in Pennsylvania who are going to endorse uh, the Democratic candidate for governor,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: saying that this Doug Mastriano who participated in the January 6th, the uh, riot, uh, is not mentally and emotionally equipped to be the governor of Pennsylvania. And so, um, it looks like Josh Shapiro, the, uh, the Democrat who's currently the attorney general of Pennsylvania, it looks like that's going to be a relatively easy race for him. So wanted to get all those numbers out of the way. So we're not bogged down by numbers later on in the show. We wow. haven't awful lot to talk about.
0: Yeah. I also want to just mention just because this is personally fascinating yeah. to me. Um we are getting close to closure in the Theranos fraud oh, case. Oh, I've
1: been fascinated by this case. I just
0: think fra- I have a personal interest in fraud cuz I cuz I think it's bad <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It's bad and I don't like it when people try to uh, I didn't buy Elizabeth Holmes's whole act that she really thought everything was working. No, she really no. thought she could do it she I didn't was a believe total that for phony. A second. Yeah, from uh-huh. the start. She just w- wanted to make some money off yes, this thing, regardless of, of whether it worked. So six months after Holmes herself was convicted of four counts of investor fraud and conspiracy, Sonny Balwani, who was president and chief operating officer to Holmes's CEO A- and, of Theranos. And I think he
1: was her boyfriend, was yeah, he not?
0: Yeah, Yeah. for some time. Uh, he was found guilty on all 12 felony counts of defrauding Theranos investors and patients. Uh, Both of them are going to be sentenced in the fall. I think Holmes in September, uh, Balwani in November, I believe. Um, Both face up to 20 years in prison. Yeah. Uh, Balwani did not testify in his trial. Holmes did. And really tried to make the case that she had been abused and manipulated by Balwani, right. and that that, you know, led her to make some of the decisions she did and the, you know, the choices to defraud people that she made, uh, but a jury. A jury seemed to find her. I think I saw a line. They found her um sympathetic, if not trustworthy. Uh, so it seems like they, they she didn't get convicted on all the counts that she was charged with, he but did. enough. Um, yeah, Balwani didn't take the stand because I think he recognized that he is not as charismatic as Holmes. Yeah, is. I don't really see it, but I guess other people see I it. I don't so see that's it either. Fine.
1: And, you know, interestingly, the whistleblower in that case was is the grandson of former secretary of state George Schultz. Hmm. And uh, he's the one that brought the whole company down. He said that.
0: Oh, yes, I remember him. Yeah. yeah. And then there were a bunch of people who were actually involved in the testing as well who came out. Yeah. And, uh, and said, hey, said, this, this is, these numbers aren't, aren't The thing adding we're up. doing is not a, it doesn't work. Yeah. We're, we're like, they were checking, they were pretending to do testing with their own machines, but actually doing testing on other commercially available stuff. Yeah. That's right. Just a joke. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they get sentenced to. But I'm glad that both of them have been convicted. Because I think that was just a massive, massive fraud. Huge fraud. Yep moving on then sure there are going to be a few other massive frauds that we're going to get to in the next uh, couple of hours but uh, we'll get to them when we do we're going to take a break here on political misfits uh you're listening to us on radio sputnik we're as always live in dc and we'll be right back Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm Michelle Woody. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We got a whole bunch of stories to get into in the next twenty minutes or so. We've got some domestic news. We've got the G20. What the heck's happening over there? We've got uh, organization in the U.S. and barriers to it. We've got China surpassing the U.S. in life expectancy. We're going to try and get to all of these. And joining us for this. Broad-ranging conversation is John Jeter. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief. He's an award-winning foreign correspondent. We love him. John, how you doing? I'm
2: very well, Michelle. Thank you for having me.
0: I want to talk a little bit about economics first because uh, it had been predicted this week that we would see unemployment tick up in the United States just a little bit, but that hasn't happened. It has remained steady at 3.6 percent. And so you have, on one hand, noises from people saying, look, 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 I know there are all these other signs that we're going into a recession, but the labor market doesn't look like it. And maybe rumors of our economic demise have been exaggerated. And so I I wonder how you think people should take this news, uh, given the overall economic landscape.
2: I, um, I've been looking for this for, for quite a while. There's a theory that, uh, mathematicians have, I think that when you fixate on a single number, mm-hmm. you tend to corrupt it. And I think that's what happens with, with, uh, unemployment in the United States or unemployment statistics. I, I don't think it means anything, right? It's like, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Wolf always says, you know, if you're sick and you go to the doctor, he takes your temperature and says, well, that's fine. You can go home now. It's, you know, it's just crazy to focus on one single indicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, I'm fairly sure uh, as much as I can be without being a trained economist uh, that the uh, when the numbers come out, I think later this month, uh, we'll find that the United States and probably most of the global economy, or much of the West, anyway, is in recession, Yeah, uh, that we will see some uh, stagnant growth and, of course, the inflation. Uh, and so um, I don't think these numbers mean anything. I think they are, um, we you know, we've distorted unemployment. I think going back to Ronald Reagan, we don't measure it the way mo- much, most of, most of the world measures it. We don't count people who are discouraged. And it's, it's so funny because I, it's so not funny. funny, haha, but funny, ironic. Yeah, I met a woman, uh, I interviewed a woman just a few weeks ago who said she had not worked in 20 years, uh, and so you know, um, and also I think we need to understand too: the jobs are actually the problem, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, that we have unemployment, um, or that we that we have an unemployment number that is that is ostensibly low, putatively low, and yet we still have um, uh, very real problems mounting enough buying power to sustain a demand economy. That tells you that mm-hmm. uh, there's no tension. though the, the jobs that are being created aren't good jobs. Uh, which, of course, was the exact same problem that confronted uh, the American workers uh, during the, the Great Depression.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Right, I think every time you look at this uh, unemployment number, of course, you have to you know throw in the grain of salt of uh, who gets counted and who doesn't, and then you have to consider, yeah, what is what is simply having a job mean in a country where workers are allowed to be so underpaid, right? And the companies, you know, some of the biggest employers in the nation are are subsidized to to be able to continue to allow to underplay underpay their employees, um, and you know. On the topic of wages, this was a great line in the Washington Post update on this unemployment figure. Uh, It said, wages continued to climb rapidly last month, offering little encouragement to the Federal Reserve as policymakers hope for a slowdown in pay gains that might allow inflation to moderate. Uh, So they are noting that average hourly earnings rose by 5.1 percent in the year through June. That was slightly less than they'd grown in May. And I mean, I do not want to beat a dead horse here, but the last inflation numbers we got were 8.6%. And so it just seems flatly immoral uh, that the only way we allow ourselves in the United States to contemplate curbing inflation is to break the backs of working people, right? So the Fed looking at wages rising and going, ooh, got to do something about it. We got to hope that changes. Uh, How is it that we have allowed ourselves to be convinced that wages are the problem?
2: I, you know, there's a. Um, this is very much like uh, uh, David Halberstam's book, The Best and Brightest, about these so-called, you know, hyper-educated, very smart men, coterie of very smart men who led us into Vietnam. It, it's, it's very much the same with the Federal Reserve and these bankers and, and this Wall Street elite that thinks that you will actually—the uh, problem with our economy is that we don't have enough buying power, not enough people have— uh, enough money to sustain a demand economy. And, you know, we, we, we sort of take it for granted that what causes inflation is wages. But that's not necessarily true. Economists don't really know what caused inflation. And there's a a, a very uh, widely embraced theory. I don't know if it's the majority of economists, but certainly a lot of economists believe that what causes inflation is that there's too, too little money chasing too few goods. There's not enough money out there. And that drives the price up, right? Uh, and, and so... Uh, The idea that we're going to somehow solve this inflation riddle by driving wages further down is just baffling in a very remedial sense, right? It's not, I don't think you need to be an economist to understand that makes no sense, right? What's caused inflation probably are these shocks. First, money printing that started in 2008, uh, which has been forked over to the uh, CEO class, the C-class suites. Uh, investors, uh, the Ukraine war, of course, the COVID pandemic. These shocks have caused uh, inflation, more than likely, right? And it's driven and it's caused by driving down or continuing to drive down or deepening the the, uh, um, the the depression of of wages and buying power. And so, you know, and I think the Washington Post story is is it's almost ironic because I'm sure they have no sort of self awareness about what they're writing, right? They they right. cheer. Jerome Powell, because, of course, our culture says he's very smart and he knows what to do and he's going to rescue us all, when in fact what they're doing is worsening the problem by driving down buying power. And not only that, and I think we're seeing this already in, in Germany and, and also in, 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 in England and probably France as well, we're seeing where people are starting to sort of see that the emperor has no clothes, right, that these that this bill of goods you've been selling us all this time about austerity, uh, you know, uh, uh, fiscal responsibility, all these things have been to the detriment of working people all across the world. So, um, you know, it's only a matter of time, I think. uh, And maybe that time is already here where the American people start to see this as well.
0: Yeah, you would. I mean, you would hope so. And they're not really helped by the way that this is reported on. You know, it's it is it's just sort of taken for granted, as you say. Jerome Powell knows what he's doing. The thing we are doing is the only possible thing. You know, it's either raise interest rates or do nothing. Those are the two categories that exist in our political imagination. And sort of inevitably, the people who are always hurt must be hurt again. And the people who will have the hardest time uh, climbing back must must remain unemployed. It's really it's just an amazing lack of, of I think, curiosity uh, on on the part of the people who are supposed to be conveying uh, these processes to us. You know, I, I, so I think, again, there is a med- there's a media component in sort of shaping the the political milieu, right, of of regular Americans. And so, you it's know, a,
2: yeah, no, it's, it's a culture problem. It's a culture problem. And I think that it really is evident with our media, which fails to interrogate. I just you know, I know I sound like someone's grandfather, you know, back in my day. <laughs> but, but, you know, really, I was I was raised as a journalist on this on this idea of reporting, right, of, you know, uh, when you get when you arrange the interview, that's just the beginning of the journey. You know, uh, when you talk to the Fed chairman, then you go to the streets, and you ask people, well, will this work? Has this work? What do you think? How, what's your experience? And that's not happening now. It's not happening, you know, practically with any story, not just economics, but politics. Uh, there's just this lack of reporting, this lack of it's it's, it's all decontextualization. Right. And yeah. the opposite of what reporting should be where you add context. They actually remove context. And not just that, but I think very much like the Academy, the the reporters today, many of whom are, they seem very young. And and I'm not sure why they got into reporting because they never seem to actually talk to anyone. They just sort of uh, speak very authoritar- authoritatively based on these very important people that they've interviewed, but they've not interviewed real people. And so I, I just, uh, the media is really a big part of the problem or of this country right
0: now. real experiences, you know, and now we all sound like everybody's grandparents. But like, <laughs> right, yeah, if you have if you have sort of been you've gone through a four year college degree, then you've gone through some kind of like master's journalism program and just been spat sort of through the the intestine of academia into a newsroom <laughs> and you've never worked a retail job or, you know, worked in a restaurant or whatever. You You don't know. You don't know the world. And uh, you don't is, know the lives of people who you would sort have of, sort of, will, like speak of casually destroying.
2: Well, it's like it's like they they always say that Frank Sinatra's singing improved dramatically after Ava Gardner broke his heart, right? <laughs> I think I think a lot of these journalists need to have Ava Gardner break their heart or Frank Sinatra. I don't know whichever. Yeah, uh, yeah they just don't seem to sort of have. I guess you know if I can get just a little bit uh, corny, uh, I think it's sort of you know I uh, had I had a. I had a uh, Uh, trumpet instructor once, many years ago. He was like an old relic from the 60s, you know, ponytail. And, you know, uh, and and he was talking about, you know, how he couldn't play jazz very well because he couldn't quite emote like that. And he said something, which I remember to this day. It's been, I think, almost 25 years since he said this. He said, I just can't tap into my blues. And I think that's Mm -hmm. such, such a key to our communication, to be able to tap into our blues, which is not this sadness. It's this sort of understanding of being able to sort of uh, connect our own suffering to other people's. And I just don't, I don't see or hear that from these young journalists today. Again, I know I sound like someone's grandfather who's been stuck yeah. in the attic for years, but uh, that's my that's my impression.
0: Yeah. All right, we're gonna hop off the fogey train for a second, but uh, I think this is, I think this is still thematically related to, uh, you know, gr- grinding American workers into a fine powder. Uh, this week, ahead of schedule, life expectancy in China surpassed that of the United States. China was on track to overtake us in 2027, uh, but it seems like our different approaches approaches to COVID have accelerated that process. And so now, according to China's National Health Commission, life expectancy there is 77.93 years, while in the U.S. we are at 76.6 years, which is a drop, a pretty steep drop over the past two years attributed to COVID, but probably also... Um, attributable to our raging opioid and overdose crisis. And for a little bit of context, U.S. life expectancy hit a high in 2014, but then was dragged down by overdose deaths. And it had somewhat recovered by 2019. Then we were hit by COVID, but you know, we don't seem to be doing anything about overdose deaths and we're really not doing anything about um, COVID. And China, on the other hand, has achieved this milestone deliberately, They've taken steps to reduce childhood obesity. They've spent, this is according to this Vice article, spent up to a billion dollars on building free fitness facilities. They're trying to limit the time minors can spend on video games. And, you know, you, certainly you can point to negative consequences of some of these actions. Uh, you can you can question the country's uh, COVID lockdown policy. You know, I have friends who say these lockdowns are not, uh, what are you ultimately achieving? But... The public health effect seems quite clear. And so, you know, I, I want to sort of add this piece of data to, to the pile as China is consistently presented uh, by our uh, ruling class as a terrifying competitor, right, in a country that is, uh, that is trying to steal our greatness, often literally through corporate espionage and, and IP theft and usurp our global position. I wonder how... A an understanding of the domestic situation in China should affect how Americans respond to these sort of constant exhortations that we have to dominate them at all costs. That they're the they're the baddies and we're the goodies.
2: Yeah, I think we 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 need an understanding, which I think the Chinese have, uh, generally speaking. We need an understanding of uh, of capitalism, right, and whether or not, as the as the old Marxists say, whether capitalism. Uh, is uh, uh, a tool of man, or whether man is a tool of capitalism? And I think that uh, the Chinese and and their government, in particular, you know, there are some flaws in what they're doing. I think. I think it's very much top down and not bottom up. You know, and I think just capitalism in the, in the, uh, ultimately uh, uh, probably is not sustainable. But. Uh, The the Chinese seem to have an understanding that we we once had, right, when we had sort of the working class actually participating in our public affairs back in the the, the late 30s, the 40s, the 50s. They seem to have a Keynesian understanding of government, which means that there is a role for government, there's a role for the public sector to play in the economy, right, in managing the economy. They don't just leave everyone sort of vulnerable to the rapaciousness of capital. Uh, and and so they have—they've really sort of—actually, if we were smart, we'd understand that the Chinese have given us a model that we should now replicate. And I know that's just very hard for a lot of Americans, at least in our ruling class, to sort of accept and admit. But they've given us a model in many ways if we want to sort of keep capitalism alive, which is a very open question, I think, at this point, with, I think, a very real, probably steep recession bearing down on us. Uh, it, that we might sort of look to sort of borrow from what the Chinese have done in terms of state investment and particularly in the areas of public health, which, of course, is a very real issue here in the United States. I mean, we've got a, a basically we've got a healthcare system that's very much invested in us being sick, not well, yeah. because they make more money that way. Right. That's not that's not my opinion. That is actually the way a private healthcare system works. Right. And the Chinese and much of the world, Cuba certainly, uh, understands that that's just a perverse incentive and one that will ultimately undo your society as well as of course, uh, the quality of life. It will diminish the quality of life. So we just need a better understanding you know of everything, but particularly I think uh, political, political economy and the way that the Chinese have it. I don't think they have it 100% right, but I think they are in the right they are moving in the right direction and whereas we're moving in the wrong direction.
0: I mean, I wonder if part of that is, you know, you, you talk about, you know, having a having it, feeling more of a sense of involvement in these decisions and in the economy and as as a sort of block. And I wonder if sometimes, unfortunately, that is aided by being a more homogenous society a particular a more sort of uh, ethnically and racially homogenous society not that china is is completely homogenous but in the us you know we are a very heterogeneous society and uh we still haven't really figured out how to manage that i feel like and i know this is something that you've been um writing about recently and something i've been seeing a lot of recently um an increasing number of of leftists mostly white but not all white Pointing out instances in which they say uh, a narrow focus on surface level diversity or racial diversity is being used to divide working class Americans and block organizing efforts. And I don't disagree that those in power use a, a very sort of surface level uh, idea of diversity to pretend our society is something that it isn't, right? so if you're if you're cheering, Uh, that like four of the five biggest military contractors are headed by women, you know, I don't think you have an understanding of what we're trying to achieve here when it comes to equality. Or if you're, you know, if you're saying, well, there are more and more black billionaires. And so that means American society is well. You know, I also think that that is misguided. And and I think sometimes more, I think sort of intentionally divisive. But You know, you have on one hand this sort of heavy promotion of this idea that uh, equality at the sort of highest levels or some some notion of equality at the highest levels uh, means we've made progress. You also have this concurrent thread that talking about uh, racial discrimination and racial injustice is itself a distraction. Uh, And I wonder why why. It is so hard for some people to do both, right, to advocate for class solidarity and and the organization of the working class and to also recognize that I- ignoring race isn't a prerequisite for doing that.
2: Yeah, I, I just I thought about this a lot and I've seen sort of this uh, devolution, I guess we would say. Uh, dating back to my youth, when Jesse Jackson ran for president, and there was a radical black politics, even in Jesse Jackson, who was a black capitalist uh, and was a black capitalist. There, there still was this residue of black uh, uh, radical energy in his politics. And and what's happened since then, beginning particularly with uh, uh, Bill Clinton, has uh, been has been this effort, orchestrated and persistent effort to uh, deepen the divide, uh, the racial divide, because, of course, if you divide the working class, then we are many and they are few becomes much less of a problem. Right. Uh, and so uh, just to give you one example, I remember I was in Argentina. Uh, this would have been 2003, I think, when I first arrived there in the country. And I was speaking to someone an uh, Argentine about uh, they were already on the rebound from their their terrible financial crisis that began in the early uh, 90s uh, liberalization of the economy, and they were already on the rebound. They were in the streets every day. Everybody was just in the streets. Protests every day. Um, uh, and and uh, one Argentine told me, he said, well, you know, we're 97% white, uh, which actually seems too low if you've ever been to Argentina. <laughs> and he says, and we're and we're mostly Catholic. So when things go wrong, we don't blame each other. That would be like blaming ourselves. We, we know exactly what the problem is. The problem is those people who live in the hills, right? They're the problem. And that's exactly... You know, race in some ways is one of the strengths of American democracy, but it's also our weakness. Right. So when they can divide us, we we um, uh, we fight each other instead of, you know, uh, uh, the late assassinated uh, uh, political prisoner, George Jackson, said that uh, uh, he said when when, uh, when when white people start. he talk, He's talking about one particular president. He said, you know, he's he's good. He says when he stops talking honky, he can really help us. Right. And his point was that he said this. He said, uh, you know, uh, when we work together, great things happen, right, blacks and whites. But when we fight each other, it's like it's like two packs of rabid dogs fighting each other. And so, you know, the left is right. There is an identity politics at play. The, the identity politics being used by the ruling class to pit us against each other. You know, the idea that we have a, a black Pentagon chief and a black uh, Secretary of the United Nations, both of whom are who are caping for. Uh, NATO and the United States in, in this proxy war in Ukraine—that's not progress, right? That's actually regression. So that's very real. But the thing is, if we talk, if we say that focusing on race uh, doesn't help, isn't productive, then we're, we can't hold anyone accountable. We can't move forward. The racial divisions are very real, and they are part and parcel of our oppression. I mean. You, you can say that. Right. And I, you know, I wrote a piece where I talked about, you know, leftists who say things like that. But the problem is that, you know, uh, uh, black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth than are white women. I'm not the only person who knows that. So you're just basically alienating, you know, uh, a key part of your constituency by uh, gaslighting these very real racial disparities.
0: Yeah. And ones that also I mean, in particular, that example about black women dying in childbirth, I think that is a, aside from, you know, you, you can that is true regardless of, of income levels. Right. Because there's also this tendency to go, oh, well, yeah, this all of these sort of racial statistics can be explained by looking at who who lives in poverty. Right. And of course, right. you know, that's the sort of a circular argument because you're like, OK, well, right. we have a very racialized poverty in this country. Um, but yeah, things like that, things like that are not tied to poverty. That's true. Whether you're, you know, Serena Williams or the wife of Bard in D.C., who's a local um, lawyer and uh, and drinks blogger who very uh Thoroughly detailed his wife's experience trying to uh, giving birth. He's like, you know, he's a lawyer in D.C., right? These these people have money. These people are doing just fine. And so, right. yeah, I think it's it's a shame that there is there is this backlash against um, the what's described as like the weaponization of identity politics by powerful people to serve their own interests. The backlash against it is just to sort of roll your eyes and say, oh, anything to do with race is a is a sideshow, and is you know, we we got to make the tent we got to have the biggest tent possible. And that means, you know, pulling in whoever. And like, maybe I don't, I mean, I I don't want to say it's an easy problem, right? Because you do want to get as many people on your side. Um, But if that means, you know, making black organizers line up next to people who hate them, that that can't be the only way forward.
2: I, I saw this in New York City during the Occupy, the beginnings of the Occupy movement. And, you know, these are young, mostly white college students who are really sort of, the heart of this movement. And they were trying to to sort of get in touch with the minority communities, the Black communities, the Latino communities. And and we've just been divided for so long, they didn't know how. So, I mean, I give them credit for the effort, certainly, right? They understood that they needed a, 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 a they needed the solidarity to move forward. But at the same time, you know, we are so divided that we don't even know, it's like we've walked into this Tower of Babel, we've emerged on the other side speaking different languages. That is a challenge, that's a very real challenge. And I just don't think that, you know, uh, a lot of these young people who we see on TV who are professed leftists, right? Uh, I don't think they quite understand that this challenge is very real and it's gonna be their primary hump. It always has been, right? And it's historically been the, the primary challenge to to uh building a United Left is 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 white racism, right? That that's uh that was true of the UAW, the United Auto Workers in the 1940s. Uh it was true of uh uh, you know, the, during the Reconstruction, the populist movement in the late 1890s. And it's true today. It's just this thing that we can't seem to sort of get over. And even when we make progress, we, we sort of fall into our old bad habits. So, uh, yeah, it's a very real challenge and one that I think I hope people wake up to because we can't we can't defeat it. We can't address it. We don't know it's there. We're not aware of it.
0: If you want to read more of what our guest, John Jeter, has written about this, you can go to his latest piece in Black Agenda Report. Uh, That was John Jeter. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief. He's an award winning foreign correspondent. John, thanks as always for joining us.
2: Thank you, Michelle.
0: You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. To political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John kiriaku We're talking about COVID and monkeypox with Dr. Iabo Obasanjo. She's professor of public health at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Dr. Obasanjo, thank you for being here.
3: Thank you for having me again.
0: Let's talk first about monkeypox. Uh, the first case in the U.S. was confirmed in May. As of yesterday, there were 700 confirmed cases, according to the CDC. Worldwide, most of these cases are in men who have sex with men, but cases are emerging among household members through heterosexual contact and in children, uh, which you know seems like that is going to make this harder to contain. According to the WHO, up to 10% of patients have been hospitalized, and we are beginning to see complaints about. U.S. testing and vaccine response, uh, which, man, you would really think we'd have gotten the hang of after the last couple of years. Uh, But so I wanted to just get an update uh, from you on what is the state of monkeypox in the U.S.? How are we doing at containing it? And, you know, is this going to be a situation where instead of being able to vaccinate a particularly vulnerable population and stop the disease there, we're looking at everybody needing a monkeypox vaccine?
3: um we 're not there yet, uh, but again, as covid showed us um, any uh, public health issue that is not well managed at the start can become a generalized um, problem that will become more serious and actually stagnate the society um, right now the strategy to vaccinate people at risk is the right one um, and and but again um, the rolling out of vaccines the um, the the uh, public and um, kind of focusing on the um, at risk group and making sure people are aware and vaccinated. And that is usually what is not done right, right? Because in order to uh, uh, work with um, vulnerable populations, you can't go to them when there's an emergency. You already have to have your health system very linked to those communities. And we're not very good at doing that. And then when you go to them when there's a health emergency, they, they do not, really trust the health system at that point, right? And so so right now, I think the fortunate thing is that monkeypox, unlike COVID, is not airborne. Um, So because you have to have close contact to be infected, that limits its ability. So you're not going to enter, you know, like at the beginning of COVID, you're not going to be in a bus and have several people be exposed at the same time. You're not going to be in public transportation. You're not going to, you know, in crowds. Spread it um, to several people because you you do need to touch someone. So so that is you know, the good thing. But um, about COVID, um, about monkeypox right now. But any disease can become a generalized um, problem if not well managed. And also, I think the other part of it that it, 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 you you asked me about the U.S. But really, it also shows that you cannot the U.S. cannot treat this public health as if it ends at the border.
0: Yes. That
3: that the globe is one and human health is one. And as long as you keep thinking that other parts of the world are the other, we're going... And and basically, I've been telling myself that, that nature is trying to tell us something. That the globe is one and we should all work together to improve health and... Not only the health of people, the social um, issues of people around the globe as one. And as long as we keep using these artificial borders to demarcate them and us, um, nature is going to come back as disease and say, look, um, I have no borders and I'm going to affect you all. So I think those are the two things. COVID has shown that, monkeypox has shown that we are one public health in the globe.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important point. Can I ask you just briefly to remind us of what? Monkeypox is like as a disease. I mean, how concerned should people be about it as individuals if they get it
3: as individuals if they get it it's like getting any other infectious disease disease uh, because the symptoms are general right there's not spe- the most specific symptoms are the um postals, which are um kind of pimple like um um growth on the face, on the hands, and it it, it it might not be on the same place. Some people might get it only on the hands, some people might get it on the face, and some people might get it. The the closest thing to it is smallpox, which we've eradicated. So most people have not seen it something like that. So there will be um 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 these little growth around the body. Um the the um and the person will be sick. Um, the, the main thing, though, is that it does not have any respiratory symptoms. It's generalized fever, my my uh, uh, joint pain, muscle pain, um, you know, tiredness, fatigue. And uh, a lot of rest will be the solution. So unless, you know, most people will probably... On, and some people will get very sick, just like with COVID. And some people will have no symptoms. So, again, it's one of those things that... Um, uh, if you have some symptoms that are not, um, If you have a fever for most things and it doesn't go away within 24 hours and there's no explanation for it, you should see a physician and then they they will start the walk up and be able to say, okay, this is what it's most likely to be. And, for example, this date of May as the detection of the first case, it's most probable that the first case in the U.S. was much earlier. That was just the first detection. Yeah. Because most people probably did not visit a clinic when they had those, because um, literally, especially if they did not have generalized um, postals around the body and it was only on the face and hands, most right. people would not um, see it, and they, their fever or the other symptoms were mild. So again, that is just to caution us that if we are not, if now that we've detected it, we can't just say that only 700 people are infected because it's probably larger than that.
0: Let me also ask you while we have you uh, to talk to us about the new BA5 Omicron variant of COVID that is now responsible for the majority of new cases in the U.S., um, in neighborhoods in New York City, testing positivity rates are, are up to 25 percent again. Uh, the variant is agreed to be extremely transmissible. Uh, but there is a lot of disagreements about how serious it is. Uh, you know, uh, media reports don't seem to say that this is any worse than uh, the original Omicron, which was the least severe uh, or caused least severe disease of all the variants. But online, on social media, you have all these stories of symptoms that feel like viral meningitis and young people getting really sick. And so I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about what what you know about this variant and whether it should prompt any change in our public health protocols.
3: Uh, variants will will come. That is what viruses do. They keep changing. Um, that is and uh, that is what they do. So, uh, having new variants, we are going to have to live with that uh, and then change the vaccine. Um, over time, right? So and change it with each new um, variant, kind of modify the vaccine to react to that variant more effectively, and that will have some lag because that's how that, that that's how it work. We can't predict how the how the change in the virus will occur until after it occurs, then we go back and change it. Um, in terms of um, there's no there's no reason for me right now to think that strategy should change uh because um yes some people will have serious symptoms even with with this variant or with uh, with any other variant but uh, in general if um vaccinated people are not going to have severe symptoms that's still true for this variant in general um it, it will still have uh, but it, we will still have this mild symptoms but some people are going to be severely sick and that will go on with every variant we're not going to be able to say oh everybody is not going to get a serious we can't even say that for the or even a common cold, right? So um, so we are going to have those, a few people, uh, not, not a few, because if you're the one affected, it's not, it, it is a serious thing if you end up in ICU. But in general for the population, and this is why people should still be careful, still get vaccinated, um, still wear your mask in crowded places, still be careful if we are going, and I still see people wearing masks. We still have to wear masks. Um, If you think you're at um, um, high risk for serious disease or even if you're just trying to be careful, um, we do need to still keep those precautions and and be as careful as you you, will be. But right now, I I think vaccination is still the best tool and and every time a booster is announced for people to go out there and, and get the booster.
0: Yeah, and we are going to have new boosters coming out in the fall. But when you talk about maintaining our current levels, I mean, a couple of months back, uh, funding for COVID uh, testing and treatment got stalled in Congress and hasn't been. I haven't heard anything about it in the last couple of uh, weeks, in the last two months. And so, you know, we are having this a little bit of a surge in cases at a time when there is possibly less money than ever uh, out there for COVID services. And so I wonder if you, you know, if you would say it's fine, continue as we continue as we have been means we don't need that funding or continue as we have been means you have to continue funding for public testing and public treatment.
3: I, I will have actually carry it that. that what we need is more funding for public health in general, because what has already been shown over and over again in the U.S. and across the world is that the, the, the focus on COVID probably actually deterred from other diseases as well, right? And now we have monkeypox. This um, treating each outbreak and then putting a lot of money to it does not solve the overall issue of the public health system. And and but also what you just described is how the public health system became uh, decimated. Is that when there is a problem, you put Everything in it, and then you withdraw everything, right? When that problem goes away, but the public health system is still weak, right? So there's this. I what I was hoping, and I haven't seen a call, is that COVID will let us reevaluate the public health system, look at health access, go back to the ACA and say how do we give everybody 100% access to care? And of course, what I mean by that is universal health coverage, because when we have that, we then remove this idea that everybody has access so that everybody, it, it, when they have something, everybody goes to get checked and we can then start kind of monitor everybody. As long as everybody doesn't have access, we are all weaker as a, as a society in dealing with public health because those people are going to not use the health um, system because you've given them no choice but to not use it. Uh, and so we've not had that discussion post covid um, yeah. so like the same health system that we had and that is a weak health system that once anything comes it will it, it will it, it will start to shake and buckle just like it did with covid yeah
0: yeah it is remarkable that we are watching sort of the same weaknesses uh, that we just watched and everyone sort of decried during the covid pandemic reemerge now with this monkeypox Uh, outbreak that I think will probably be much less consequential. But yeah, yeah, it just shows that there is a lack of will to make these changes that we so obviously need. Uh, That was Dr. Yabo Obasanjo. She's a professor of public health at the College of William & Mary. Dr. Obasanjo, thank you so much, as always, for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: We are going to take a quick break here and come back and get into a little bit more of the legacy of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. We're going to talk about the state of crime and punishment in the United States and how it is that Oklahoma is getting ready to execute so many people without much outcry. And I think John's got a little news of the weird End the week with us, too. Have some fun ones, too. I'm excited. All right. We're going to get to all of that here in the next hour. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And we are going to be talking a little bit more now about the assassination of former prime minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe. As we mentioned, he was the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history. He was a transformative figure uh in ways uh well i'm going to say good and bad uh the news of his death was shocking on many fronts you know uh it, it, the high level assassination of a high level figure always uh extremely surprising but also as we talked about in the monologue uh, a, a shooting death in japan especially of someone of his stature i mean really uh, it feels like a bolt from the blue yeah really and so it's shocking here to talk to us about what if anything this assassination uh, says about uh, Japanese society right now, and also to talk about you know who Abe was and and what his legacy is. Is KJ No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. KJ, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Before we get into Abe, I want to ask uh, what we know so far of his killer and how we should take this act, uh, because I am wary of taking uh, the act of a man with what appears to be a homemade weapon as some sign of changing times in Japan, you know, Uh, but I will leave that to you. Uh, What do we know of his killer and his motivations? And how much do you think we should read into this?
4: Uh, We don't know a whole lot. We have more questions than answers at this point. But what we do know is Uh, The name uh, of the alleged killer is Tetsuya Yamagami. He's a former Maritime uh, Self-Defense Force veteran. That is, he's a Japanese Navy vet. He was a quartermaster, and he was in the Japanese Navy from 2002 to 2005. And then after that, he seems to have been working as a forklift operator until recently, where he quit his job. He's 40 years old. He used a handmade Shotgun, And for me, he gives a little bit the impression of a Japanese Travis Bickle from, if you recall, Taxi Drive. Oh, yes. But what we note here is that, according to the Japanese police, they say that he plotted to—we're hearing two different versions. One is that he did not intend to target uh, Shinzo Abe, and this was a purely opportunistic event— which case that is, you know, like taxi driver. And the other uh, news that I'm also hearing is that he plotted to kill him because he believed rumors about Abe's connection to a certain organization. And other reports say that a certain religious group, if it is a certain religious group, it is probably Abe's connection to the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership, uh, this is a very interesting organization. This is, uh, you know, taking some liberties here. It's a little bit like a cross between Opus Dei and the Tea Party.
0: Oh, dear. Wow. It sounds bad. Uh, about
4: 300 of LDP members uh, in the current parliament are members of the Shinto Association of Spiritual Leadership.
0: Wow. I mean, on one hand, it's... <sighs> It's interesting because what what this association would seem to represent and also what what Abe represents in in the history of Japan. And I sort of uh, wanted to be. To not speak ill of the dead, you have that knee-jerk reaction to go, oh, I did good things and bad things. But, you know, as you have pointed out, KJ, uh, Shinzo Abe's legacy has been, you know, uh, to to remilitarize Japan, to uh, enable U.S. escalation against China in the Pacific, to allow Japanese troops to fight in foreign conflicts, to escalate tensions with uh, with. North Korea, South Korea and everywhere elsewhere in the region, you know, to uh, deny the the history of Japan's use of comfort women. you know, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty dark legacy uh, f- for a lot of people. Right. According to a lot of analysis. And so on one hand, uh, you see, OK, well, lots of people would be opposed to to the things that Abe and that this organization represents. And yet, you know, hard to see much rationality. Uh, you know, to, to put aside questions of, of morality, but anything rational in in this opposition taking the form of a, a single 41-year-old 40, man making his own weapon and shooting one guy, you know?
4: Yes. As I said, we, we still don't know. There are too many questions at the current moment. But You know, once again, the Shinto Association is a far-right militaristic group that believes in the rejuvenation, the reestablishment of the Japanese empire. Japanese militism, and it wants to ban state-religion separation. So they're very, very fundamentalistic, but they represent a very large majority of uh, the current Japanese LDP leadership. For example, you know, just as, for example, Opus Dei was a very large part of uh, Franco's fascist government. And so there, there's a very much a kind of political dimensional certainly political repercussions to this, whether that was intended or not. But it's exactly as you say, you know, Shinzo Abe, you know, is a far right nationalist. He wanted he himself wanted to remilitarize Japan. He was a revisionist denier of Japanese militarism and Japanese history, in particular comfort women escalated tensions with North Korea, completely unnecessary. North Korea and Japan at the time were reaching, you know, considerable rapprochement. And when Shinzo Abe came in, he uh, escalated tensions with North Korea, escalated tensions with South Korea, with China, and even with Taiwan. And of course, you know, he was this unrepentant militarist and imperial revanchist. He worshipped at the Yasukuni Shrine, where the Japanese war criminals are buried. And this is, I think, in my opinion, one of his key accomplishments or legacies, is that he had attempted to uh, retire Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution, that is, the peace article in Japanese in the Japanese Constitution. He wasn't able to do that, but he, what he did do uh, was he was able to reinterpret it. And so he enacted uh, legislation in 2015 which allowed the Japanese to fight in foreign conflicts anywhere in the world uh, under the pretext of collective security with the United States. And he was the architect of the Quad. Uh, and uh, key enabler of the U.S.-China escalation uh, in the Pacific.
0: Well, yeah, I wonder if you could link this legacy with um, what we are seeing from, um, you know, from, from U.S. political figures across the board, which is messages of condolence that stress how great a friend Abe was to the United States. And I wonder how you would link uh, his friendship with and perhaps, uh, you know, utility for the United States to to what he managed to transform in Japan.
4: Yeah, well, I would say not so much uh, a friend to the U.S. as a completely compliant vassal Hmm. to the United States. And I I really I say that with all sincerity, his utility was that of uh, an attack dog. For U.S. foreign policy. And this has to do with who Kishi was, not just who Kishi was, but who his family was and who his party was. Uh, if we think back a little bit, the Kishi, um, uh, the Abe, comes from the Kishi Abe family. This is a dynasty, this is a political dynasty. And his grandfather, uh, Nobusuke Kishi, was one of the worst criminals of the 20th century. He was responsible for the mass death and enslavement in the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo. Probably responsible for the death of millions of people. We know that at least 20 million coolies were taken into Manchukuo. Uh, We know that at least seven million of them were actually slaves. And people have compared, you know, the processes and the industrialization in in Manchukuo to the Belgian Congo. This is who uh, Nobusuke Kishi is, the grandfather of Shinzo Abe. But he was uh, Kishi was detained as a Class A war criminal after World War II, and then he was rehabilitated and supported by the United States. Why? Because he was instrumental in creating the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, which is effectively the one-party state of Japan. They've been in power for almost 64 years. And the LDP was really created by uh, Kishi with the help of the CIA and they essentially created a developmental dictatorship that was completely subordinate to U.S. policy interests. In particular, Eisaku Sato was the great uncle, once again, of Shinzo Abe. He's the person who put in all the base agreements and militarized Okinawa into the unsinkable um, uh, aircraft carrier that it is right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... uh... It's important I, to reflect on the legacy of these men as it, as it really is. It is.
1: And I, I, have to, I have to tell KJ what I said when I walked into the studio this morning. I said, I learned more about Japan this morning from KJ No than I knew from the entirety of my life. So thank you for that, KJ.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. That was KJ No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist. We really appreciate you joining us uh, on short notice there, KJ.
1: You're welcome. Always a pleasure.
0: All right, John, I think we can just go straight into U.S. politics. Right,
1: I think we're going to go into politics. Lay it on me. Political Washington um, is just now beginning to awaken as about half the states have held their primary elections so far. Campaigning begins with an eye toward the midterms and whispers are circulating that many Democrats, of course, we've discussed this, would rather see somebody other than Joe Biden lead them into the. uh, Let me
0: do an impression of one of these whispers, Please. Could anybody but Joe Biden run? That's right. I feel like they're probably pretty loud. And not just that.
1: It's somebody that's not Joe Biden and not Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm, Yeah.
1: That's how bad it is.
0: Hey, we hate both of these guys. (laughs) What are we going to (laughs) do? It's not just that we hate them. Everybody hates them.
1: Everybody hates them. I I mentioned yesterday on the show that Monmouth University released a poll on Tuesday uh, showing that President Biden's approval rating was only 36%. That's not just the lowest that it's ever been. Not just. It's the lowest approval rating for any president since the advent of polling. It's lower than Donald Trump ever was. It's lower than Richard Nixon on the day of his resignation.
0: He's really achieved something.
1: It's incredible how... Dissatisfied Americans are. And as a result, like I said, people around town are beginning to talk about alternatives to Joe Biden, none of them being named Kamala Harris. Instead, there have been some strategic leaks that we've seen um, from supporters of California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom and supporters of Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. And on the Republican side, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is planning a major fundraiser of Republican mega donors. In Utah, regardless of whether Donald Trump runs or not. So that's going to be a battle royale among the Republicans. And a court on Friday ruled this week that DeSantis, and this is very important, DeSantis can spend as much of the $125 million that he's raised for his gubernatorial reelection campaign on a presidential campaign. So He's been raising money. He's smashed every fundraising record in America, um, $125 million wow. to run for re-election as governor. And realistically, he only needs 10 to $20 million.
2: Wow! Now this
1: federal court has ruled that he can spend whatever's left over on a presidential campaign. He has way more money to spend than Donald Trump does at this point.
0: And again, does he want to run Trump?
1: And that's really the question. Does he want to run? I've said from the beginning, I didn't think he would run. I, and I still don't think he's I'm going to I'm not going to bet
0: against it, no.
1: In other news, Politico this morning had an article about Pennsylvania's Senate race between Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and TV quack Mehmet Oz. Uh, for reasons that Oz has not explained to anybody, he just pulled all of his television advertisements on May 22nd. I said 21st earlier. It was the 22nd.
0: How dare you?
1: He's down by 10 percentage points in that race in the latest polls. And despite his vast wealth, which is estimated to be about $400 million. Yeah, Oz Oz has a lot of money. A lot. Uh, So despite this vast wealth, he doesn't want to spend any more of his own money on the race. I I mentioned uh, in the first hour that the Republican National Committee has been urging him to spend his own money on this race so that they can spend money in states that are closer. Um, And he said, no, he already spent 12 million dollars. He doesn't want to spend any more of his own money. That's right. That's right. Uh, We've told you over the past several weeks that the political prognosticators are unanimous that the Democrats are going to lose the House of Representatives. And that they would likely lose the Senate. I'm proud to say that I have never said the Democrats were going to lose the Senate.
0: Can I would you like to hear a quote from Joe Biden uh, just when he was signing this executive order uh, that is sort of relevant to this? Uh, He in signing this order and saying, hey, we can't pass this legislation. You want us to. We need two additional pro-choice senators and a pro-choice house to codify Roe's federal law. Your vote can make that a reality. I know it's frustrating and it made a lot of people very angry, but the truth is this women of America can determine the outcome of this issue. So they are still, they're still going, now. just give us a little more. Yeah. Just give us a little more. more. You just Uh vote it. Just vote us in again, but in greater Uh numbers.
1: Exactly. This is why we need third and fourth parties. Um, The uh, prognosticators are beginning to change their minds. You know, I follow Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia. I follow, follow the Cook Political Report. I follow Real Clear, RealClearPolitics.com. Um, and they've come around to my point of view. If yeah. the election were held today, the Republicans would likely win 25 House seats. There's no chance that the Democrats can hold on to the House. But if the election were held today, the Democrats would pick up two Senate seats. And those look to be Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Now, I said in the last hour, Wisconsin is crazy close. But uh, Pennsylvania is not. Georgia's not. Yeah. And the Democrats look like they're going to hang on in Nevada and New Hampshire. So the Republicans have their work cut out for them in winning the Senate. Um, there are a couple of other interesting things that uh, that I wanted to raise uh, politically. It seems this week the wedge between mainstream Republicans and Trump Republicans is becoming deeper. And we're seeing these examples all over the country. Uh, the gubernatorial and Senate races, particularly, um, there was a, a an article today in the New York Times saying that uh, this is particularly prevalent, I guess is the word I can use, in Arizona, right? There's a guy running for governor in Arizona endorsed by Trump. He's running against somebody endorsed by Governor Ducey. The guy running that's endorsed by Trump, of all things, when he was a student at Stanford in 2007, which makes me feel like a really old man. um, He was writing on a CrossFit chat room, right, which is where he chose (laughs) to lay out his personal politics. And his personal politics are libertarian to the point of irrationality. That the U.S. should have never gotten involved in World War II. World War II was none of our business. World War I was none of our business. Al-Qaeda was never a threat to the United States. Um, opposed to war under any circumstances until he decided to run for the Senate. Mm. And now he's wanting to jump into wars all over the place.
0: I mean, that's telling about more than just this individual. You know, it's, it, it is telling about the only viable positions uh, you can take if you want to have any hope in this system, which is not to say that the American people don't necessarily have an aversion to war. Uh, but, you know, the, the powers that will really help you get elected or not, uh, don't want someone that's not going to be a reliable partner of the military industrial exactly
1: complex. Exactly Right. Exactly right. And when you're desperate, and when I say desperate, I mean for things like um, fundraising lists, for example, or major endorsements, you'll, you'll mold your own personal ideology. Well, I wouldn't, but people like this will mold their own personal ideology just to make their chances of getting elected a little bit better. Sure. Um We're seeing that all over the country. I I won't go race by race, of course, but but we're seeing we're seeing sitting politicians now who are a, a lot more willing to challenge those people endorsed by Donald Trump than they were six months ago, which is another reason why I think that I just don't think Trump will run. Why risk losing, not just losing to a Democrat? But to risk losing in a Republican primary, I just it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, legacy is very important to Donald Trump. And he thinks that his legacy is something really special right now.
0: He thinks anything he's ever done is something really special. So, I mean, you know, what is what a state of mind to live in all the time? Oh, it's
1: it's just so sad.
0: Listen, is it wrong to think, yes, but what fun? Would it be to see a January sixth style riot at the Republican National Convention if Trump loses? Is
1: that, is that oh my, a bad kn- thought to you have? You know, that's what would happen.
0: I mean, I think yeah, it, I, it is very interesting. It will be interesting to see sort of ten years down the line what what impact Donald Trump truly had on on American politics and whether you know how how much of the hysteria was justified. Well, I, read- I don't know. I mean, it's not to say that he wasn't a vile creature who did vile things. It's just. Um, has he really, you know, how how out of line was he really with the policies of his party?
1: I think that I think that he's done more damage to governance than Richard Nixon did. I, you know, I read that quote the other day uh, from an associate of Trump where Trump told this associate, why is it that not everybody realizes that 50 percent of the time I'm full of it and I'm just joking? Right. Right. He's caused untold damage to to our ability to govern ourselves.
0: But is it because. Is it because Trump himself did something bad to the institutions of the United States or is it because his elevation through normal political channels reveals how rotten this the things actually were? And you know what I mean?
1: That's what people are going to get Ph.D.s based on.
0: I'll issue them. Seriously, me, seriously, I think it. that's yeah.
1: a, that's really an area of study. I think that there are future generations of political scientists who are going to study exactly the question that you just poised. Well, you're welcome, posed. future generations. I'm that's poised right. as well. Yes. Uh, very quickly, um, I've mentioned a couple of times that Pennsylvania is one of those very, very rare states that literally has no laws on abortion. None. It's funny because Pennsylvania is... A, a relatively conservative state it's it tends to be blue but right wing pro life pro labor pro gun but it's just never you know neither the democrats nor the republicans have ever had enough seats in the state legislature to overcome a filibuster from the other side and so as a result there just aren't any laws on the books to govern um to govern abortion and so this is going to be a major campaign uh, issue in this coming election at the gubernatorial level. The Republicans control both the state house and the state Senate, but not by much, just barely. And it looks like there's going to be a Democratic governor again, like there's been for the last 12 or 16 years. Mm -hmm. You have a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, and they're just going to have to balance each other out. Mm Now the the Republican nominee Doug Mastriano, who I've said very clearly is a nut, he's one of these right wing extremists, uh, came out yesterday as if this is going to help win him votes, and said that he opposes abortion under any circumstances, from the moment of conception, because, as an example, Kathy Barnett, and you you might remember Kathy Barnett, she ran. Uh, for the Senate a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. in the primary. She was the one that claimed to be a, a big military hero, and there's no evidence that she was ever in the military. Oh. Yeah. Um, he said, Kathy Barnett, who is going to be our next U.S. Senator, she's not, is a product of rape.
0: Yes. Oh, I wish right. I would. I understand my facial expression can't come through the <laughs> microphone, but it is one of shock and horror. Yeah, maybe it should have been up to Kathy Barnett to to release that information. Yeah, what? what? <laughs> who, also, who? Oh, I guess he's saying if your mother had chosen to, yeah. but I mean, right. Wow. Ouch. What a scumbag. Uh huh.
1: Real what? scumbag. Yes.
0: I mean, it is at least is sort of philosophically consistent to oppose abortion under all circumstances. Right. If you think if you yes. think that it is murdering, truly life, murdering a living thing, yes. then, you know, uh, the circumstances of your birth are bad. Sorry. Yeah. You know, That's I think right. it's wrong. I don't think we should have it. But, yes. you know,
1: I, I've said this for years about about abortion. If you truly believe that life begins at conception and that abortion is murder, then you have to be opposed to abortion under any circumstances. You also have to be opposed to the death penalty.
0: Yeah. Because life is life. And have to be opposed to people dying in poverty. Exactly. And have to be opposed to women dying in hospitals. Yeah. And if you want to do that, great, you know. And also, I know a lot of people who oppose abortion, but personally, right? But are not going to impose that vision on uh, yeah. the people who well, live like around Well, like the old them. saying: "You don't like abortion, then don't
1: get an abortion."
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's and if that you want to, if you want to proselytize and convince people to your religious perspective, go for yeah, it. Go ahead, but don't make abortion the tip of the spear.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, There are a couple of other issues that we can save uh, for next time. We've got Paul Wright uh, on the line. We're going to bring him in and uh, talk about quite an important issue that's not getting very much uh, press coverage, and that is the death penalty. So we'll take a break here. Uh, You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. Oklahoma, that bastion of human rights, has scheduled, get this, 25 executions. You heard that right. 25 executions between August and December. That means that the state will put to death 58 percent of all the people on death row, including prisoners with severe mental illness, brain damage, and credible claims of innocence. State Attorney General John O'Connor sought the execution dates just four days after a judge ruled that Oklahoma's three-drug death cocktail was not unconstitutional. A lawsuit had been filed by 28 death row inmates who argued that the last two executions were botched, with one prisoner screaming that his body was on fire before finally dying, and another who gasped for air for 30 minutes before dying. In addition, half the state's death row inmates were convicted in Oklahoma County, which has a long history of prosecutorial misconduct. In 2021, for example, five death row inmates who had been convicted in Oklahoma County were exonerated and freed And yesterday, a group seeking to recall Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon submitted more than 717,000 signatures, considerably more than the 567,000 needed to get the question on the ballot. That is a question of recalling him. This movement started after a man who was released with no bail for a violent crime last year went on to kill two Southern California police officers. We're joined by Paul Wright. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome back, Paul.
5: Hi, thanks for having me on the show, John.
1: Paul, let's begin with Oklahoma and the death penalty. In the period where states couldn't get the drugs necessary to carry out executions, uh, many of them just elected to end their death penalties, Connecticut, Delaware and Virginia come to mind immediately. But other states like Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas have ramped up their executions. What does public opinion say about the death penalty? And more importantly, what do the courts say, especially with the advent of these new execution drugs?
5: Well, so far, the, the courts have been pretty uh, pretty silent. And I think it's worth noting that in the history of the American death penalty, um, the U.S. Supreme Court, at the end of the day, has never found a means of execution to be unconstitutional.
1: Oh, good point.
5: Whether it's Ouch. execution, um, the gas chamber, the firing squad, you know, whatever, they're all okay with killing people. And and they always have been. And I, I think it's, it's interesting because— um, Lethal injection was posited. Actually, lethal injection actually came out of Oklahoma. <laughs> that was the first state to to codify um, lethal injection as a means of execution back in the late 70s. And the idea was from a legislator, a legislator who was a veterinarian. So if you ever um, euthanized the pet, that's pretty much where this whole free drug protocol and everything else comes from, is it's the same uh, procedure that... Um, this veterinarian in Oklahoma came up with um, and codified it to uh, to kill people and kill prisoners, and that was kind of the effort to medicalize the procedure, make it seem like um, basically sugarcoat the fact that you know this is the government killing people. And now that we've seen a pushback uh, around the lethal injection, the reason that they're having problems with that is that the pharmaceutical companies that make the drugs. Uh, have, most of them have been bought out by European pharmaceutical companies who are objecting to their products being used to kill people. Their position is, you know, these are medicines, these have legitimate uses, we want them to help and heal people, not kill them. And that's kind of put the government in a bit of a bind because they're having to scour the globe looking for these drugs. And, and it's interesting when you juxtapose, you know, the time and energy they spent looking for drugs to kill people versus how vigorously they fight using drugs like hepatitis C protocols to cure prisoners their care. And so anyway, so faced with this uh, shortage of drugs to kill people, a lot of states, um, including South Carolina, Utah, a number of others are expanding the means that that they use to execute prisoners, including um, the firing squad, um, uh, the electric chair. And it's interesting too, in some states, though, they want to make a point though that, you know, they're not, um, totally barbaric, so while they 're permitting some forms uh, they 're expanding to you they 're expanding their repertoire of execution to include things like firing squads they 're also specifically outlawing others like heel hauling, which um, I had to look this one up that 's the ancient practice i guess of tying people to the bottom of a boat until they drown. Oh, uh, my God.
0: I've heard of that. I thought it, it was a metaphor for something. <laughs> something. I, I know it killed him, <laughs> oh, I my God. Guess, no idea it was uh, still being discussed.
5: It apparently, in South Carolina, the legislature sees fit to have to um, outlaw it, but apparently it was widespread uh, up until around the 1800s, but, but primarily for executing errant sailors or people who committed crimes on the high seas. But... Um, you know, but again, I think this is kind of like the level of ridiculousness that um these states and their zeal to kill people um have been operating in. and so, so, when we see that Oklahoma is scheduling twenty five executions, the reality is how this stuff um, you know how this stuff usually pans out is is that um uh, they set a bunch of execution dates. And then judges are going to stay a lot of them while these pending appeals or pending um, uh, challenges, the underlying convictions or the death
1: sentences are heard. So, you know, so that's that's actually what I wanted to ask you next. Uh, there's a there's a state law in Oklahoma saying that there's an automatic gubernatorial clemency hearing every time uh, a, an execution is scheduled. Um, That doesn't include, of course, whatever appeals may remain on the book. So I wanted to ask you what you thought the chances were of 25 people or up to 25 people being executed by the end of the year in Oklahoma.
5: I I think the numbers on that are fairly slim. Um, Usually the big thing is before, usually before prisoners are being executed, they've generally will have to have either waived their appeals, these are the so-called volunteers, or they need who have, um, they need to have exhausted their, um, you know, their, their court remedies or their av- or their various appeals and that. But then I think one things to remember is, you know, just before leaving office and his Trump to, in his quest to, you know, have a bloodbath on federal death row, President Trump um, started signing all the death warrants for prisoners that had been languishing on federal death row for many years after having exhausted their appeals. So they were kind of just sitting there, they'd exhausted their appeals, they didn't have anything pending. And so then, you know, Trump just started signing um, um death orders. And I think that's one of the things that we that we see in a lot of states, though, um, as well as in a lot of respects, the death penalty in America is almost a form of political theater. And, and um, you know, so when you start looking at, you know, when the death when executions are being scheduled um, and things like that, you know, there's usually some political consideration going into, you know, when are, when are we going to kill these, these people, um, when are we scheduling it and things like that. And, and, you know, I, I think we see this going back to, for example, uh, folks that have been around a while may remember back in 1992 when Bill Clinton was campaigning for president and he interrupted his campaigning to go back to, Arkansas to sign the death warrant for uh, Ricky Rector, who was a mentally ill.
1: Yeah, um, I had forgotten that.
5: Yeah, so I mean, so the death penalty is a valuable political prop for politicians seeking office. For um, you know, then there's plenty of other examples too. And like I say, the most recent one is um, is President Trump. You know, and, and I think it's important to note that you know President Trump's death for a bloodbath also occurred during. Uh, the last election, during the 2020 election, and continued pretty much right up until he left office. So you know, so we see, and it's and it's interesting because when you look at the polling, uh, public support for the death penalty is at around the lowest it's been now in probably the last 40 years since they've been doing polling on it. And um, but among judges and politicians, support for the death penalty seems to remain as staunch as ever. And, you know, the uh, and especially among judges from our our current Supreme Court. Um, And and ironically, of course, um, you know, I think when you start talking about um, the death penalty and abortion and the people that claim to be supportive of life and pro-life and everything else in America today, the states that are most um, vigorous and vocal about supporting the death penalty and having the government kill people are all those states or mostly are states that also um, are against abortion. So out of one side of their mouth, they're claiming to be pro-life when it comes to to the unborn. On the other hand, they really like killing people after you've been born.
1: Paul, uh, one of the things that has surprised me uh, looking into this Oklahoma thing is how bipartisan opposition to the death penalty is there. Uh, That's because there's credible evidence that one of the men set to be put to death in August is innocent. Not just that he's, you know, not as guilty as the death penalty would would have you think. The guy's factually innocent. One Republican state senator says that if this man, his name is Richard Glossop, is put to death, that he will personally lead the fight to do away with the death penalty in Oklahoma. Now, my question to you is this. With all the people who have already been sentenced to death and then exonerated, why isn't there more support for ending the death penalty? It's shocking to me that so many Americans would rather see innocent people put to death than to risk a guilty person not being put to death.
5: Well, I think Heinrich Himmler, the former chief of the Nazi police, is the one who summed it up so accurately when he said, you know, better than 100 innocent men be published than one guilty man escape. And yep. he said that in his capacity as the head of the Nazi police force. And I think 80 years later, that mentality is in full swing and readily adopted by legions of American politicians. and Yeah,
1: I think you're right. Uh, Paul, I'm going to I'm going to go out of order here uh, because you, you brought up the issue of abortion, which is very much in the news today. Um, in the most recent issue of political I'm sorry of prison legal news magazine you wrote an editorial about the impact of criminalizing abortion on incarcerated women abortions will likely be freely available you note in about 20 states Uh, you know once state legislatures do what they're going to do in the coming weeks and months what does that mean for incarcerated women in states where abortions will be restricted or banned
5: well I I think one of the things that you know we've we 've seen and are seeing is the fact that you know even before even when abortion was legal, incarcerated women routinely in many states had to go to court to see court orders to get their captors, either state prison officials or um, local jails, to take them to an abortion clinic or take them to a doctor to terminate um, unwanted pregnancies and so on the one hand we 've got that then on the other hand we 've had um, We've had uh, in other states, as you know, where abortions have been freely available, that hasn't been so much of an issue. But access to abortion for prisoners has always been an issue. And I think what we're going to see now, especially in the states that um, are criminalizing abortion or outlawing it, and that women prisoners are going to have an even harder time. I mean, one of the things is that I hear in a lot of – I mean, I've been reading a lot of the commentary – uh, you know, from all sides of the political spectrum, seeing the impact that the Dobbs decision is going to have on women seeking to terminate pregnancies. And I think in some respects the more cavalier ones are, well, you know, women can also leave their state. If they if they live in a state that's outlawed the procedure, they can also go to to New York or California or someplace where it's still available. And that ignores the reality that if you're a woman in custody who wants to terminate a pregnancy, um, you don't really have any means of doing so. The other thing that's also been really not discussed at all is the impact that uh, this is going to have on uh, the hundreds of thousands of women that are on probation.
1: And oh, good point. I hadn't yeah. even considered that
5: yeah. and i and I think that that's one of the things is that you know, there's actually a lot more women on probation and and especially probation because, The offenses that women tend to get convicted of uh, tend to be, you know, property offenses, um, you know, theft, drug offenses, things like that, that don't necessarily result in incarceration sentences. There's hundreds of thousands of women that are on probation and also on parole, and typically a standard condition of both probation and parole is you can't leave the county without permission of your parole officer, your probation officer, or the court, and so, telling women in those situations that, you know, well, hey, you're pregnant and, you know, you can also leave the state. Um, so now you're putting the decision of who gets to access an abortion in the hands of a probation officer or a parole officer. And then, and I think it's also important to note that, um, that anywhere, depending on the state, anywhere between like 40 and 65 percent. Of prison admissions are for people who commit uh, technical violations of their probation or parole terms, which means they haven't committed a new crime, but you know they've they violated one of these technical rules. So these technical rules, like you know, don't leave the county without permission, and things like that. I mean, these are pretty vigorously enforced, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people are incarcerated. Uh, because of these all the time. And I think that's one of the things is that, you know, if you're a woman on probation in a state that's outlawed abortion, uh, you know, it's not as simple as, okay, I'm pregnant. I want to terminate um, this pregnancy. Um, and I have the means to leave the state and go somewhere to seek the medical treatment I want. But then, If you can't do it, if you can't leave the county without permission from your parole officer or your probation officer, that's kind of putting you in a pretty difficult position.
1: Yes, indeed, it does. I want to ask you a question about what's happening in Los Angeles. We've talked a couple of times about the backlash against the no bail policies of a handful of district attorneys around the country. Chesa Bodine, the San Francisco DA, has already been recalled. His uh, replacement uh, took office today. George Gascon in Los Angeles is now facing a recall. Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, is in a very public fight with uh, Mayor Eric Adams, who's accused him of being soft on crime. So I wanted to ask you Has this experiment failed? Or do you think we're going to go back to filling jails with poor people who can't afford bail as they await trial?
5: Well, I'd say we never really stopped. Yeah. Oh, so, um, the uh, jails around the country are filled with poor people who are too poor to afford bail. I, I think it's interesting, though, is that you know we had in 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 uh, the face of you know I think Chesapeake Bodine, uh, George Gascon, I think have become Larry Kramer in Philadelphia. I think they've become, I think, in some respects, they were the public face of people saying, you know, the prosecutor's office has a duty to do justice, not just to cage a bunch of a bunch of people just because they can or just because um, you know they've been arrested. And I think in some respects, I think this also is kind of like reflective of the political failure of the American political system for the past 40-plus years where every social problem is viewed as having a police state solution. And, that I, and basically you know, incarceration and caging people has become the, the American ruling class's you know, favorite solution to pretty much everything under the sun. Yeah. Um, you know, our education system is failing. Well, hey, let's lock you know, let's turn our schools into prisons. Um, you know, we have we have a lot of mentally ill people that um are deteriorating and going into mental health crises because we don't have any type of public mental health program. Let's lock them up. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the people that exemplified, I think, you know, this kind of level of cynicism was Mario Cuomo when he was governor of New York. And he took several, he took hundreds of millions of dollars of housing and urban development funding that was supposed to be used to create low-income housing, and he used it to build prisons. Oh, friends. And with a straight face and no hint of cynicism, he said, "Well, the prisons are low-income housing." And, oh my God! <laughs> um, you know, and I, and I think, and I think the people that are leading um, the charge to, you know, recall prosecutors like Jessica Bodine or George Gascon are, are kind of the people that exemplify that mentality is that, you know, they just want to lock everyone up. Um, and, but I think that it also, in some respects, I think it also overestimates the power of, you know, of prosecutors. I think that, you know, trying to blame Chessup Dean for, you know, problems that San Francisco has in terms of homeless people and, and mentally ill. I don't think any of this stuff is within the power of the prosecutor to resolve. Now, if what they're talking about is, hey, let's take a bunch of poor people or homeless people, charge them with uh, rinky-dink offenses, or I think, as Rudy Giuliani exemplified, he was mayor of New York, quality of life offenses, you know, the guys with the squeegees, the turnstile, things like that. If you want to charge a bunch of poor, mentally ill people with a bunch of petty crimes to lock them up and get them off the street, then, yeah, maybe the prosec- maybe you do need a different prosecutor to do that. But then that also has its own social cost. Sure, it does. You know, you lock up a bunch of poor, mentally ill people on rinky dink offenses. Um, you still got to cage them. You know, that still requires bed space and cell space. At that point, now the government's responsible for them in ways that they aren't when they're homeless. So now they are entitled to medical care. That's right. Um, and, you know, maybe they will get medical care, maybe they will get mental health care treatment, but given the track record of jails in particular, they don't have a very good track record of doing things like providing mental health care, providing medical care, mm. and things like that. So, um, so you know, I'm, I'm not really sure that—I um, mm. think that what's driving the, the backlash against, uh, on the one hand, in these highly visible, you know, recalls against Joseph Lotine and now uh, Gascon, I think— What's driving that? I don't think people are gonna. The people that are supporting these recalls, I don't think at the end of the day they're gonna get what they think they want, uh, which I think is, you know, sweeping up poor people, getting the homeless people off the streets and locking them up. I don't. I think the problem is bigger than that. I don't think that these cities in California's can arrest and prosecute their way out of homelessness and illness.
1: I think that's right. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Paul Wright. He's the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back with news of the weird. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witty. It's Friday, and that means that it's time for News of the Weird, where we bring you some of the more oddball stories in the news.
0: What do you have for me? I got three, maybe four
1: if we have time, fun ones. Let's start in California. I mentioned this to you um, off the air. Uh, who among us remembers Anson Williams? He's the actor who played Potsy in the 70s sitcom Happy Days. Well, Potsy is now a 72-year-old semi-retired director and producer. He lives in beautiful Ojai, California, just down the road from Santa Barbara. And he announced at a city council meeting a couple of days ago that he is also now a candidate for mayor of Ojai. All right. The mayoral job, mayoral job is nonpartisan. And William said that the current mayor hasn't done enough, blah, 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 blah.
0: Mm.
1: Not surprisingly, he was immediately endorsed by Fonzie,
0: <laughs> played
1: by Henry Winkler. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Fonzie tweeted that he will head over to Ohio and campaign for Potsy.
0: There we go.
1: I happen to have a friend who lives in Ohio. He's been there since the 70s. He's a, a documentary filmmaker. And um, every time I go to Southern California, and I have a day. I go up to Ojai, and we have lunch in the town. The town is about as big as this room.
0: Trying to look at where it is.
1: It, it is one of the most beautiful places in the world, surrounded by the mountains, but only a few miles from the Pacific. It is heaven. And uh, it's only fitting that Potsy becomes the mayor of Ojai.
0: And, you know, continuing a Hollywood tradition of becoming mayors. of Wasn't Clint Eastwood mayor of Carmel?
1: For many years. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have Reagan and and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sonny Bono.
0: Sonny Bono. I forgot about him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, what's his name? Fred Grandy. Gopher from Love Boat. He was in Congress for 10 years.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. This is getting into, like, my early childhood remembering reruns of this or, like, you know, my parents wondering whether I should be allowed to watch Love Boat when I was six. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right Michelle,
1: there really is such a thing as too much money.
0: No. Sorry.
1: There really is.
0: No, I don't believe you.
1: I found an article in Business Insider. Okay. It says New Yorkers who battle weekend traffic to their Long Island enclaves, the Hamptons, are rushing to urologists. For a cure for something called Hampton's bladder. What? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I have a guess. Okay, go on, go on. Traffic is so bad that you can't just get in your car and drive to the Hamptons, Mm -hmm. even though it's only, you know, 100 miles away. Right. You have to pull over to pee. And there is nowhere for rich people to pee. Because God forbid they go into a McDonald's. Right. Right? Right. So they're going to urologists and they're requesting these procedures. No. Called, uh, one is prostate artery embolization for men, where they actually go up in there and cauterize well, stuff. Well, why? Is
0: it to make you be able to hold, hold it longer? Yes. That's insane. So why would a, you do that? It's a
1: surgical process in men to, to shrink the prostate gland and for women it's called bladder botox
0: no uh-huh.
1: which decreases the frequency by which women Just have to go to the your bathroom
0: helicopter i know right not, listen i have a really consider I, I have been stuck underneath new york city and having <laughs> to go to the bathroom real bad and really contemplating whether I, I, cause I was, you know, stuck in stop and go traffic. I had thought, oh, I'm just going to, I'll pull over as soon as we get through the city. And it yes. was a big mistake. Yes. And so I had to sit there and think, well, what do I do, do I just destroy my car seat and, and my car? Cause I don't know if you can ever get back into a car that you have personally urinated in. Or do I become internet famous yes, because right? I have to jump out of my car on the side of the road on a sidewalk in an underpass where a minimum of one hundred people will film me. See, in New so York, I,
1: nobody would even pay any attention.
0: Oh, I think they would. I think <laughs> they would have filmed. I think they would have, and it would have been me just screaming obscenities <laughs> to the bathroom. Uh, but I made it, John. I made it. Thank God. I made it, not into a building. But I made it out of That's the okay. highway. That's okay. <laughs> to a it's patch worth of it. Grass in front of a Howard Johnson. Totally Johnson's. worth it. Uh, but yeah, but no. At no time did I contemplate. You know what I'm going to do so I can avoid this next time is go have surgery. No. On on no. my body. The uh, only one I get.
1: And listen to what this urologist says. They come out to the Hamptons and they have to stop four or five times on the way and they can't find a decent restroom. This is according to Dr. David Shusterman. Wow. He says when they're in the car with a bunch of people they're embarrassed. Because they have to go to the bathroom every hour. I've lost three friends because I'm the driver and I refuse to stop for them.
0: Whoa! You, okay, you didn't deserve any of those friends. Who is telling your friend? No, I'm not no. going to stop because you yeah. have to go to the bathroom.
1: No, I won't stop. Wow. He says one happy customer said that he's like a kid after the procedure. There's no dread now.
0: Okay, this is just <laughs> the. Uh, well, you're right. Too much. That is too much. Too money. much. Too much money. Here's my favorite one of the week. Only
1: in America. During a flight from Detroit to Denver two weeks ago, an unidentified passenger was reprimanded by a flight attendant and other passengers after he airdropped a sexually explicit photo of himself. One of those selfies that we're not allowed to say because it's on our our list of banned words. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right? It's uh, no, but I don't, but you don't have to say it. You can't can't say it specifically from 1993. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: So he's he he sent by airdrop a selfie of his genitals to literally everybody on the plane, buddy. Right. Buddy. So the flight attendant went up to him and said, Why are you doing that? He said, I'm just having a little fun. It says here his fun came to an abrupt end when the flight landed and FBI agents escorted him off the plane. A Southwest Airlines spokesperson confirmed that the, quote, unfortunate incident occurred and that the airline maintains zero tolerance for this obscene and unacceptable behavior
0: yeah i was a little soft on this guy earlier <laughs> but that is unacceptable also everyone on the plane you can only airdrop to other iphones right, right. so i'm protected protected by my android uh, against these circumstances well,
1: this, this article said that um a lot of the people that he airdropped the, the photo to were children yeah with iphones
0: yeah buddy you didn't think that might be possible you through. didn't think that now you're gonna have to register as a sex offender for the rest Seriously. of
1: your life
2: Seriously,
0: I don't think this is the first time it's this has happened. I think there's a story, but it was it's the first time it's happened on purpose. I think someone was trying to send trying to send a message to like his partner sitting next to him or something, and instead instead everybody's phones start lighting up. It's terrible.
1: There's there's one other uh, story too about Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, You know, for those of our listeners who who don't know, I I worked with Sasha Baron Cohen on the movie uh, Bruno. Lots of fun. Guy's a genius. Um, and he's not afraid to push the envelope. Well, pushing the envelope uh, recently got him into a little bit of trouble. Uh, it says here, this is from CNN today, reported today, actor Sasha Baron Cohen has defeated an appeal brought by former Alabama judge Roy Moore, who oh. claimed the British comedian had defamed him in a program where he falsely accused Moore of being a pedophile.
0: Falsely accused, eh?
1: That's the word they're using. Okay. I, I kind of. Took a start at it, too. Mm-hmm. Falsely accused. The three-judge panel in the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan unanimously ruled Thursday to throw out the $95 million lawsuit from Moore and his wife against Cohen, Showtime Network, and its corporate owner, CBS, over a segment of the Who is America program, which aired in 2018. I
0: mean, I guess Moore is not like a convicted pedophile, but it's undisputed that he was uh, trying to pick up little girls Correct. at malls, right? Correct. I mean, that's what I, yeah, so...
1: So here, here's what the suit was about. And this is what made me laugh out loud. Baron Cohen presented himself as an Israeli anti-terrorism expert and former intelligence agent in the segment, during which he showed news clips reporting allegations from the time of Judge Moore's Senate campaign that he engaged in sexual misconduct with a 14-year-old girl. In character, Baron Cohen described a fictional pedophile detector. During the episode, the device which was sitting next to him right. like a handheld metal, metal detector was shown beeping every time it got near Moore.
0: <laughs> John, wait, John, we're going to run out of time. Uh, <laughs>
1: indicating that he was beautiful. a pedophile. Moore walked out of the interview.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> I could, there's nothing better to end the week on than that. Thank you to all of our guests. <laughs> thanks to the producers and engineers here. Thanks to John Kiriakou for bringing News of the Weird uh, every Friday. And uh, thanks to you guys all for listening.